Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Back Half, the New Statesman's Culture Podcast with me, Tom. And me, Kate. And this is a very special episode of The Back Half because it's the last episode of The Back Half. Hooray! In it, in its pre- <laughs> I, wait, I paused for too long. In its present format, Kate, but we, like Theresa May, we fight on. We fight on, we stagger yeah. through. Um, we will no longer be the hindquarters of the pantomime ass <laughs> Um, we will, we will, because we're, we're actually getting a bit of a promotion to the, the main New Statesman podcast, where we'll be appearing monthly from the new year, which is very exciting for us. We it's may, a leg up in the world. We, we may slot one in in December as well. Yes. We have something exciting to say. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so if you already subscribe to the main New Statesman podcast, which is hosted by Helen Lewis and Stephen Bush, then carry on as you are. You'll just get an extra extra dosage of us every month and if you're not subscribed to that podcast wtf mm-hmm. where have you been mm-hmm. get on it it's got many listeners yeah so hopefully we will bring all our listeners from this onto that one and add like a tiny percentage <laughs> to their overall add four <laughs> but you will be able to hear um a variation of this and uh with with items and obviously a non-aversary as well because we will never lose our non-aversary no you can't rip it away from us out of our <laughs> grasping clutches. Today we will have a non-aversary. Mm-hmm. It's a quite a high quality non-aversary. Mm. You know, usually, sometimes we go low. Mm-hmm. This time we've gone sort of medium high. Mm. We'll also be talking about a rather extraordinary gig. <laughs> I say extraordinary because I know Kate detests it when people say extraordinary because they I have think, a theory I have you? a theory that people posh people on the radio say extraordinary to give themselves a bit more thinking time and they put an extra syllable in it it was the most extraordinary film they say and then they've used up some more time and then they don't have to make a point just listen to people on front row in the today program saying how extraordinary things what's your kind of intensifier of choice what, what adjective do you reach oh, for Oh gosh yeah I, a short one I guess I suppose I don't know. What do you do? I would say I suppose I would say amazing, but that's amazing, a bit bland, yeah. isn't it? Awesome. <laughs> it's uh, we need to really invent some new ones, actually. Yeah, I mean, some of them are like tremendous is good. Anything with three syllables is kind of like a, it really builds up to it, doesn't it? How monumental. Do you, monumental how, how do you feel tour. about terrific? I, I don't mind terrific. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's use terrific today. Okay. 
We'll have a terrific chat about a gig we went to last night. We went to see Christine and the Queens at the Hammersmith Apollo. Mm-hmm. And we also went to the Royal Academy to see the Clinton Sheila Drawings exhibition. And we are going to bring, right now, our art critic Michael Proger on to talk about that with us because he can do it much better than us. Yes, yeah, so we're going to defer to Michael. So we've just been to see Klimt Sheila drawings at the Royal Academy, and we recently ran a piece in the magazine by Michael Proger, our art critic, who is sitting right here in the studio with us today. Hello, Michael. Hello there. So, Michael, what's the idea behind this exhibition? What's the connection between Klimt and Sheila? The connection is that they were the major artists uh, of the first 10 20 years of the 20th century in Austria, but also among those in, in Europe too. And the real the real link is that Sheila, who was 28 years younger than Klimt, was a big fan and uh, introduced himself to, to the older artist, to, to Klimt, in around about 1907, 1908. And apparently there's an apocryphal story that he showed him a load of drawings and, and uh, Sheila asked Klimt, do they show talent? And Klimt responded, uh, yes, too much. Um, <laughs> but nevertheless, these, these two artists of a completely different generation at different um, stages of their career, Klimt by this point was a very established artist, uh, fated, a little bit notorious at the same time. Klimt was just, uh, Sheila was just starting out, became sort of friends, and Sheila looked at Klimt as a sort of mentor. And they kept up a, a certain... Uh, relationship um, for the remainders of their life, which in fact wasn't very long since they both died in 1918, uh, which is the point of bringing this the, the two of them together at, at this point in time ah, to the yes. to Royal mm. Academy. As Sheila already knew he was good. You make the point in your piece that he wrote to his mother, reminding her that she should be grateful for having given birth to a genius. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't lacking in in self confidence. Nor, of course, was 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 Klimt. He uh, he had this uh, a career that took him from. Uh, from fame to notoriety, back to fame. Uh, and he spent the last uh, chunk of his life largely keeping him to himself, being economically viable, looking after his father's family when his father died young and his brother's family when his brother's died, uh, brother died young. And um, to do this, he painted society women and his, his golden paintings, his mm. famous golden paintings, uh, which he charged a great deal of money for. And he wasn't averse to rumours going around that he was sleeping with every woman who came into the studio. But in fact, he was, although he was married, he had a long relationship with a fashion design, designer called Emily Fleurger uh, and seems to have been relatively sort of faithful, for, faithful to her, or if not faithful, at least discreet. And he didn't attract notoriety and uh, infamy in the way that, that Sheila was mm. to do. So there was a strange thing that they were both outsider artists, avant-gardists, but uh, in terms of respectability, Klimt was the more respectable of the two men. Although you do say that Klimt used to wear nothing under his kaftan while working. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't quite know how this came about. I mean, everybody repeats this, so I felt it was, it was my duty to do the same. <laughs> it's my favourite part of the piece. Um, but he had, yeah, he had this kaftan that was supposedly designed by Emily, and he floated around in this sort of pasha kind There's of way. There's a photograph, way. isn't there, at the beginning of the exhibition yeah. of him in this... Uh, yeah. In With this, this amazing thing. beard and sort of, yeah, on profile. No, he liked, he liked this, this sort of Old Testament prophet, calm. Yeah. Oriental potentate, which is which fits in with the sort of this, this glitter and gold, the Byzantine aspect. Mm. And Sheila took painting. on the kaftan as well, didn't he? He had a he had a kaftan phase. Yes, he <laughs> although, went through a kaftan phase. Although, when you look at the photographs of the two of them that begin in the very first room of the exhibition, you can see that they're different generations, can't you? Because okay, Sheila might have adopted the kaftan, but he looks quite. He sort of weirdly looks like a kind of 
David Lynch figure or something. He's yeah. wearing quite sharp. He's wearing quite a sharp suit, you know, quite a cool sort of modern haircut. And um, Clint has this sort of weird sort of almost like Rasputin-like yeah. demeanor. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think that's right. I, I think, again, that fits with the, the, the pictures that both of them produced in the sense that Klimt, Klimt's work was largely set out of time. So mm. he, when he was drawing women, and it tended to be women, um, he made them into um, archetypes mythical figures, um, the the personifications of, of sort of abstract, whether it was humanity or virtue or whatever it happened to be, whereas Klimt painted real people and they stayed as real people. Sheila painted. Uh, I beg your pardon, Sheila did. It's very weirdly, even though their names sound very dissimilar, I find I cannot talk about them without mixing without them up. Without hesitating and yeah. thinking, have I got the yeah. right one? Yeah. Well, thank you for pointing out my mistake. <laughs> I was wondering when, when I was looking uh, around at the, the Klimt sketches and, and often, you know, sort of quite a detailed head falling into a, um, a sort of geometric body, a kind of clothed, almost like a kaftan wearing uh, body. I wondered how, how much he influenced kind of Art Nouveau or how much he was influenced by it. Was there a kind of a... A close tie-in between yes, those there was, sorts of images. There was that whole thing about the Vienna Secession and Jugendstil, young style, uh, and Art Nouveau. Art Nouveau really slightly preceded them, but and these other these slightly Germanic forms uh, with the Vienna Secession um, followed on and, and took them on into into this world of stylization and design, um, very uh, very graphic, very very visual. If that's not tautological. Um, but they did grow out of that that stylized form of, of Art Nouveau, mm. but took it into into this sort of glittery world that um, that Art Nouveau never quite entered. Uh, took away the sort of floral forms uh, and plant based imagery mm. of, of uh, and curves in many ways. And what was the idea behind the secession movement, which Klimt was very instrumental in? Wasn't he? he was he was one of the founders in eighteen ninety seven, and the idea was was really not to give a prescribed form of what art should be, whether it should be realist or abstract or historical, whatever, but to take it away from the way that art was taught in Vienna at the time, which was quite formal and historicist. So it was really a place for young, innovative artists to show their work and to be among their peers. And did it have an afterlife? because because movements tend to sort of flare up and and burn out quite quickly. Um, this one looked like it had a, a bit of a kind of coherent thought behind it in that you've got a sort of very beautiful looking journal, the Sacrum, I think mm. yeah, it was Sacred called, Spring. Yeah. Um, and exhibitions and, and a kind of a, a bit of a coherent ideology behind it. It was. I mean, it didn't last forever. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Klimt, who was one of the founders, seceded from the secession himself because <laughs> they had a, philo- a philosophical falling out about what art should be. Though it did put on a lot of exhibitions uh, in a sort of ten-year ten-year period. Uh, the war, as the war did with virtually all art, it tore up what had gone mm-hmm. before and remade it afterwards. So, but its great flowering between eighteen ninety-seven and 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 up to around about nineteen nineteen oh eight nineteen ten. Um, was was very influential and it brought together not just Austrian artists, but it was a place for contemporary art from the rest of Europe to be seen by the by the Austrian public. And at least initially, the uh, the Austrian government was quite pro and gave them the space to build the Secession Building, which is still there in the in the in the middle of Vienna. When you when you were going around this this show, I mean, could you help but question who was the better drawer? Uh, I, it just seemed to me that you get, you came away that this in this particular bit of arm wrestling there was only one winner and it's Sheila's pictures. Why is that? 
uh, they are so distinctive. And I think it's, it stems from the fact that they drew for slightly different reasons, that Klimt drew largely as, as in, a, in a preparatory way for his paintings. Um, Schiele very, very rarely did that. He drew it as a form of artistic Tourette's because he couldn't help himself drawing. <laughs> and he had a style that is absolutely distinctive. Um, Klimt's drawings tend to be quite elegant often, even when they're, even when they're genuinely sketchy sketches. Um, but there's an angularity and a, and a, a nobliness and a, and a very distinctive personality mm. to to Sheila's drawings that is um, that sort of sears itself. I'm sorry, but it does it on the on the on the uh, on the visual memory. Mm. Um, and there's all these debates about his his women being pornographic. I think if you look at pornography, I think you could define it as something that is supposed to titillate a viewer. I don't think these are in any way pornographic. No, not, yeah. uh, I mean, they may be rude and explicit, but mm. I don't think they're pornographic. No, they're both heavily into Freud. You make the point they'd read the essays, the sexuality essays from what's nineteen oh five, nineteen oh six. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, Freud was just around the corner. I mean, Vienna's not a huge city; it's a very compact place, and Freud was was living and working half a mile away from them. Uh, and I don't think in the in the atmosphere of the time they could have been unaware. And there was certainly a group of, of I mean, there's two very explicit um, Klimt drawings of a woman masturbating that were done for a collection of erotic uh, pictures and prose for a group of collectors. And uh, they, so you've got you've got artists who are buying into this, you've got collectors who are buying into this, and you've got Freud who's giving it a theoretical. Um, imprint all in the same place at the same time. It, it seems too much of a coincidence to be a coincidence. Were the erotic drawings actually displayed to the public, or was there an area? Were they an area of their work that had to be kind of kept a bit quiet? You know? It was. It was a bit of both. They weren't displayed um, as such, though. Um, Klimt got into trouble because the, the nudes he did for the University of Vienna were thought unseemly. In fact, they're quite decorous by modern uh, standards. They were all lost at the end of the Second World War when uh, the retreating Nazis blew up a, a, a castle in which they were currently held. So they, But that commission they, was cancelled, right? That commission was cancelled, but because... he, did, he did do the painting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so they... Excuse me. They they were for they were for show. The drawings, which tend to be the far more explicit, were for connoisseurs. Um, if you <laughs> can call them that, private collections, as they always <laughs> have been during the history of art. The rude stuff goes, you know, is is for the back room and uh, <laughs> private delectation. You 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 mentioned um, in the in the piece you tell the story of a point in Sheila's life where he it's quite traumatic for him where he is um, arrested for. Um, housing a, a a girl who's run away and and he helps her kind of go and find her grandmother but effectively she's run away from her parents and this is discussed in the in the exhibition and they they have um show the the drawings that he did in in prison but actually the the thing that he was eventually sort of convicted for was for failing to keep erotic nudes in a sufficiently safe space <laughs> so it was the fact that this young girl would be in his in his house, and she might see and she might these see them. corrupting things, which is which is fascinating in a way because then one of the one of the most sort of genuinely challenging pictures in the show is a Sheila nude of a very young girl, isn't it? Yeah, and as as the curators point out, the age of consent at the time was fourteen, um, so it's far. You know, it's mm. it, that's it, that in itself is a shock, but it means that legally he wasn't necessarily transgressing any 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 bounds morally is a 
different question. I mean, it's a very uncomfortable picture, the one mm. you're talking about. It's painted in grey for a start. So you've got sex and death in one painting. It's putrescence mm. and eroticism. And he's he is absolutely explicit. This is about sex. You know, it's uh, because he he paints he uses a vivid pink watercolor in only three places, which are lips, nipples, and labia. Um, and you know that seems to me it's bang bang bang. It's the three places of interest mm. for him. Um, so I think there's no mistaking whatever he thought he was doing that this is that this is a painting about sex and uh, sex and a very young girl. Mm. Mm. So he was living then with his with his partner in a, a village and the young girl was staying with them. And, and what actually did happen? It, she wasn't staying with them. They, they had moved out. He, Sheila was a big nature fan uh, slightly, as indeed was Klimt. The two things that interested Klimt were women and uh, largely trees and landscape. Mm. They were the only two things that really interested him. Um, <laughs> and there, it's a shame that there were, there's no room in the, in the exhibition for any of, of Klimt's landscapes because they're really spectacular things. But um, Sheila was sort of similar in that he was very interested in landscape. So they had moved out of Vienna with his lover, uh, Vali Neutzel, um, who um, had been introduced to him by Klimt. And they were living in a little village called Krumau, which is 30 miles outside Vienna. And had obviously what, what passed in Vienna, the sort of living habits that were okay in Vienna were not okay in this little rural um, outpost. So they were already figures of some interest and disapproval there. And a local, the local children would come round and and uh, sort of uh, look at what these two curiosities were up to and go into the studio. Hence, they would have seen these pictures. Mm. And uh, a girl who was the daughter, I think, of a retired naval uh, captain, fell out with her parents, wanted to go to Vienna to stay with her grandmother who was there and asked Klimt and Volley to take her there, um, which they did. Um, and they were pulled up for child abduction and, sub and seduction. Mm. Uh, he spent 24 days in jail, but was was let out when it was clear that there was no case to answer there. But the judge clearly disapproved of his art because he he burned one of uh, Sheila's drawings in the courtroom just to show what he thought of this <laughs> degenerate stuff. Um, and he That's was he was uh, he was convicted of uh, of immorality for as you say for allowing. Uh, illicit pictures to be seen by minors. Yeah. You say that um, uh, they were sort of friends, Klimt and Sheila. What was the relationship between them and how much of a mentor was Klimt, really? Uh, that he, was ne he never taught Sheila. Uh, they had these exchanges of drawings. So it was a professional, one of professional courtesy. I'm, I don't think they spent very much time together, though they kept up a regular, they met semi-regularly. Uh, and it was acknowledged, I think, by Sheila that, that Klimt was the senior artist. Klimt, as we've, uh, Sheila, as we've said, uh, wasn't lacking in, in self-belief, but he realised that this was the senior man. And indeed, he wanted to take over that sort of portrait practice that, uh, that Klimt had and to become as successful as, as the older artist, though he never managed it at the end of their lives. Um, uh, Klimt was still charging 20 or 30 times more than, what wow. she, than, wow. than Sheila could charge. I, there was one bit in the exhibition where they said that Sheila... I don't know whether this was Sheila or someone on behalf, but sort of tried to bill himself as the Silver Klimt. Hmm. Uh, yes, I think that was that was going to be a failure. The, the, the aesthetics were completely different yeah. in many yeah. ways. And the posh ladies are going to want to commission Klimt rather than Sheila exactly. in a nice dress. Aren't they? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> do, do you, uh, madam, you can uh, you can have yourself in this beautiful uh, gold leaf flowing dress, or we can just chop your legs off uh, at the uh, at, at the, the knees, yeah. show you Fanny, and cut your head off. Uh, yeah. Over to you. Yeah. <laughs> but he was, uh, the, nevertheless, I think there were quite a lot of women that did 
a little bit of them rather like that idea. And in the last <laughs> in the last year, the curators at the show point out that he had 177 different sittings of people coming to sit for him. Yeah. How many of those were him asking people to sit for him so he could carry on drawing? And how many were uh, coming because they wanted to be drawn by Sheila mm. is, is, is not so clear. Um, but he was getting there at the time that he died, and he died at 28. You know, yeah, what, what would amazing, he have done yeah. at that point? He was already, I think, one of the greatest craftsmen in the history of art, bar none. Mm. Um, if he had lived another 30 years, who knows? And he drew Klimt in the morgue after Klimt mm. died. Have yeah. you seen those pictures? No, I haven't. I haven't. They, so they still exist? They still exist. Um, he's not the only one. I think it was Don Bacardi did these drawings of uh, of um, Isherwood after Isherwood had died. They're, they're, you know, some deeply creepy like things going mask, on. Like a death mask, Like a death mask, yeah, yeah. And it was the global, the Spanish flu the Spanish epidemic that, that yeah. wiped them both out in 1918. Yeah, I'm not so sure. It certainly got Sheila. It got it got um, his wife Edith um, just a matter of days beforehand. Who at that point was six months pregnant, and Volley had gone off to the front at this point to serve in the Red Cross, and she died in Croatia, I think, of scarlet fever. And Klimt died at the beginning of 1918 um, from. I think it's probably pneumonia as a com as complications mm. from from the influenza ex mm. um, epidemic. Imagine so, yeah, having to contend with that now, like if our great cultural figures were just taken out by the flu and you just lost them to pandemics. It's it just amazing. Seem, it idea. just seems that horrible thing that after the war had taken out so many artists and so many poets, then comes along with something that's even worse mm. uh, and takes out a load of the remainers and some of the best ones too. Well, Klimt Sheila drawings is at the Royal Academy until the 3rd of February. Thanks very much, Michael. Thank you. So, Kate, last night we were in the circle of the Eventim Apollo. Mm. Not the Hammersmith Apollo, but the Eventim Apollo. I always thought it was like the Carling Apollo. Or it something, changes. But they, they change. It changes they keep changing. But good on Eventim for, for stumping up the cash for that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and... Um, we went to see the the tiny French singer Christine and the Queens. Yes, like a like Florence and her machine. Yeah, it's a kind of um, a catch-all for a sort of a concept of a an alter ego of a woman called Eloise Letissier, uh, who is still very young. I don't know how young she is, twenties, and she is the daughter of two, I think, English teachers in Paris. So she has this amazing rather posh, clipped, French-English kind of way of talking. So she was like, this is the second night I've done in that venue, she says <laughs> on stage. She's like, so she'll get the odd word wrong, but she sounds amazing at the same time. Um, so she she had a kind of theatre arts background, as far as I recall. And You interviewed her I interviewed a couple her of years back, didn't you? For us, she yeah. had a She had a sort of... Her breakthrough was was a couple of years back. She had a kind of uh, a Glastonbury performance, a Jules Holland performance, and a single kind of that all came out within a few months. Yes, so. the single tilted, and she was put on Graham Norton, right. which was quite a quite a big thing because she's had this uh, sort of very distinct. She was wearing a, um, a grey suit and little sneakers, and she was doing this Michael Jackson style dancing mm. in this extremely light um, lightness of touch kind of bubbly French pop song with English words, and everybody just like, oh, who the hell's this kind of thing. So I think it just rocketed it into the top 20 or something but she yeah she had a kind of epiphany when she was 19 or 20 where she she was at the end of a relationship and she came over to London and she had a night out in the sadly now defunct Madame Jojo's I mean tragically now defunct Madame Jojo's whereby she'd kind of walked around got talking to a load of drag queens probably got drunk 
was taken home by them, had a bit of a meltdown in front of them and was given a sort of basically a big kick up the arse by these drag queens, a pep talk, um, talking about how she could express herself and find greater freedom of expression mm. and use sadness to, uh, in a theatrical sense, put it onto the outside. And it kind of created this um, this concept of this, this alter ego called uh, Christine, who's now delicately evolving and mm. her second record, which is, I think... You, we both agree far better than her first one. Yeah. Um, she's now she's on stage and she's going. Well, you know, I had my first my first record, and now that Chris is still around, a bit more defiant and muscly and sweaty, but still the same obsessions. <laughs> That's how she talks. Um, so yeah, so she's, she, she's now she's she's now Chris. So she's now she, Chris. She was Christine in the Queens and um, for the first record, and in the second one, she's remodeled herself as Chris, which is kind of uh, drawing out. The, the masculine stuff which was present in in the first one certainly in the performances mm. and like really pushing that to the fore so it's kind of all about um harnessing a sort of slightly more aggressive in your face sexuality um but the songwriting is great mm. right like so it's kind of bits of prince bits of michael jackson bits of kate bush uh, i mean i don't know what else is in there it's just uh, you know and it's kind sort of, of like yeah 80s melodies that kind of yes. get you in the gut yeah yeah exactly and, and and they're sort of sad but colorful at the same time yeah. it's just got this it's just got this sort of rather exhilarating feel about it but it was so interesting seeing her because it was like a theater performance wasn't mm. it it was like i mean you'd seen kate bush on on that stage doing her sort of semi-theatrical thing. And you made a comment to me that actually you thought this was more successful than that. I thought this was more exciting. Yeah, I mean, the, the it's interesting, like, how do you incorporate elements of theatre into a stage show? And I realised that actually, really, most of the bands I see just don't at all. They're just, you know, doing their thing. And, you know, I don't, I tend not to get to go and see the sort of Justin Timberlakes and Lady Gargas and stuff who who do actually kind of put on big theatrical arena tours. But, um to come back to Kate Bush it was yeah it was it was wonderful but it was um it was a big baroque like to be honest slightly overbaked you know narrative that she's woven her songs into mm. um you know she tried to turn it into kind of something more operatic and what i loved about um Christina the Queen's performance was that it was you know, it basically used the elements that we had in like our like GCSE drama lessons. Like it was a black box stage, like a couple of rostra. Our drama teacher was always going on about stacking the rostra. You haven't <laughs> stacked the rostra properly. <laughs> What's the point of the rostra? <laughs> the rostra are just those those um, like little platforms that the band that the band are sitting <laughs> on. But like they're they're like the most versatile parts of like stage furniture whatever because you can stack them up you can make higher levels you can make lower levels whatever so so the band are standing on these um the band's just like four dudes right yeah. um and they're standing each on individual rostra um which which are then like moved around throughout the performance and she has this amazing set of what's a half a dozen dancers mm. um who are dressed like a kind of slight update of something out of West Side Story. You know, they're kind of like cut off. Sli- you know, they look yeah. quite 80s in they're a way. They're street kids. They're street 80s, kids street from the kids. 80s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Street kids, exactly. Essentially just promenading behind one another in the way it, like you would do a GCSE drama. And then she, so it's like they're in a playground or something. And yeah. then, hey, Chris arrives and yeah. she comes on. It's very, uh, it's it's almost like naive. Yes, absolutely. But very effective because she she enacts these little psychodramas in on stage um, in a very, again, with this sort of unheavy handed approach. There's a song called I'm a Man Now on the first album and and it's sort of she, you know, her talking to a, a male dancer and the kind of sense of the shifting um, energies of female and male between them. But it's a lot of kind of like, you know, throwing your fingers in someone's face and making a shrugging gesture and yeah. stalking off for a minute and coming back. And it's very... Um, it's very lively, but yeah, it's not It's not sort of supposedly knitted together into some coherent theatrical narrative as far as I can see. No, but what it does do is it teases out the little mini narratives in the songs. and like The emotional all, narratives. Yeah, the emotional yeah. narratives in the songs. And, and I find listening to her songs really interesting because I think... I think the lyrics are probably quite good, but I can't, it's, I mean, I've listened to that record a lot and I'm only just beginning to hear them because although she, well, for a start, she records two versions of all her albums. So there's an English version and a French version. I think she probably does the English version first and then sort of retranslates it into, mm. into French. But because of her intonation and the, and the way she sings, um, often you're none the wiser as to what she's actually <laughs> talking about. But you you get you get a bit of the emotional feel of it. And then what she's done with the dance is sort of bring it out. So if it is about, you know, she's um she's got this song, um, girlfriend, like I don't feel like a girlfriend. And and the the dance then, you know, picks up on that theme and she she pushes forward a kind of masculine character who's rebelling against the idea of like being someone's other half um and it's it's brilliantly done throughout throughout the whole show really and i love the way that the dancers i mean it is very much i'm going to keep banging on about west Side. in some ways i feel like this this whole evening was precision tooled for my pleasure like <laughs> as someone who grew up obsessed with both west side story and the music and dancing of michael jackson yeah yeah it's like it could not be it could not be better. She did a little bit of Man me. in the Mirror, didn't she? Oh, she sung one line of Man in the Mirror and I was like, I reached, reached for the handkerchief. <laughs> um, but it is that, it's that, I mean, Michael Jackson drew on West Side Story as well for like things like Bad and Beat It and stuff. Um, but it's it's absolutely that school of choreography, like using a bit of aggression and a bit of movement. And she, she you know, as you say, they're like running around the stage. So, she, so it's brilliantly done so that they'll be complete like kind of loose motley crew and then suddenly on a break they'll kick into synchronized movement which i always think is like it, it's probably the most basic trick but i always find that so satisfying. really effective yeah, and satisfying because yeah, yeah. they're just random people on stage and suddenly bam yeah. they're, they're doing a great dance you can see it working in a bigger venue i mean it was like packed out for two nights and she's really sort of taken off and stuff but um one thing i hope that she never changes is this extremely uncool stage pattern that she has it's the sweetest thing <laughs> yeah. in the world she'll be like questions why are you doing this i have no idea <laughs> that kind of thing and there was one point towards the end when she i wrote down what she said because it was so bizarre she goes i don't want it to stop haha you're stuck with me all night but the healthy way is i have to let you go have experiences of your own and come back. <laughs> and then she's like, she ran from stage up to the upper circle. She performed a song in her bra, draping herself over the top of the balcony. Um, and she was obviously really enjoying that bit. And then she kind of she took the mic and she ran down back through the bar. And as she did so, she narrated what she saw. She was, she was running. So she went, cardio. 
people singing at the bar, people leaving. They should probably stay. <laughs> she saw people leaving her own gig. And she was just like narrating it. But also that you can feel that. Um, I mean, she's probably got some amazing choreographer, but you can feel that sort of bubbly creativity coming into the into the set because you can imagine at one point she goes, why why don't we have a forest at night with snow? I don't know why. And that's exactly what you got for a couple of the really anthemic songs, this beautiful backdrop with this, these, this sort of spectral trees and then this, this artificial snow falling down and then sand at one point falling out of the ceiling and no explanation as to why. <laughs> no, but really effective. But I suppose that maybe that contradicts my earlier point about it being minimalist but those were it was two very yeah. very well chosen like little bits of kind of artifice and towards the end and, that was the sort of climax yeah wasn't it? yeah yeah and um she she's just yeah she's she's gloriously uncool in a way. <laughs> like I, I think you were saying yesterday you know she could have made this show a lot cooler so this character of chris you know mm. if you cut out the stage patter and like beefed up the kind of Aggress- aggressive sexual nature of it you know it could be a very different kind of thing but actually she's just really enjoying mucking about with yeah. all this and and also her her ideas of like gender and gender fluidity you know that's that could have gone in a much more serious mm. sort of po-faced direction but she's 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 kept it kind of energetic and and celebratory even when even when she's kind of even for the sad even for the sad yeah. songs and she she does have her own story there in that sense I mean she would have been I think she was in a relationship with a, a girl was the, the big one when she came over and did her Madame Jojo's thing so she right. was obviously out from a teenager yeah uh, but then is obviously questioning how male how masculine her, yeah. her identity is and stuff so she's sort of pushing that a lot but she could really go a lot more heavy-handed on that stuff but I think it kind of works in terms of a an inclusive um pop culture experience and it does have a bit of a root in the old lady gaga kind of you know yes. my little monsters this is yeah. a safe space type yeah. thing yeah. so you can see that and i love that sort of sense of it not being too um prescriptive in one way or another i mean the audience was like hugely mixed there were loads of people in their 50s and 60s there uh, the guy, the guy next to me was like he must have been in his late 60s and he it's like turned to me over She's terrific, isn't she? <laughs> I saw her two years ago at the Roundhouse. This American guy was like, great. And then there were like, you know, very sort of gender fluid looking 13 year olds mm. there as well. Like, so you're right. It kind of really, um, but also that's the, the kind of the dancing and the sort of entertainment aspect of it is, has a very broad appeal, I think. Mm. Yeah. You kind of think, why, why don't, more people do this. I just hope she continues the chat and doesn't end up with the headset microphone and a kind of glacial exterior. I want her to remain like this kind of weird drama teacher. Well, yeah, <laughs> I know, I, there is a danger of that, isn't there? And, and um, you know, I was reading that Madonna's sort of tried to befriend her and kind of get <laughs> get her on board. And I think there's there's only one person gaining from that relationship, and it's it's Madonna. Really, yeah, because Christine doesn't. <laughs> She doesn't need that. In a way, that's the risk that she gets adopted by, you know, I don't know, Madonna and Ariana Grande and, mm, you know, yeah, yeah, Janelle yeah. Monet and like becomes part of some kind of like little mutually appre- <laughs> mutual appreciation society. Um, she needs to keep it real. Keep it real. Keep it real. I have I have in my notes here that it's 16 years to the week since Eminem's 
Eight Miles was released to the cinema. <laughs> so I should go back to my desk and, and do some subbing on my own notes. But yeah, so Eminem's great uh, autobiographical, autobiographical <laughs> film, <laughs> Eight Miles, <laughs> hit the screens 16 years ago. Did you see this film? I did see this film. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I think at the time, I wasn't interested in Eminem, really. Weirdly, I kind of got into Eminem a bit after seeing the film, I think. Really? I, did, I kind of just slightly dismissed him. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, a brilliant, it's a brilliant biopic, isn't it? And, and um, the thing which you probably should avoid doing because the egotism of it is staggering and can only lead to bad things, I play yourself in a film about your own <laughs> life. I mean, you know... That's disastrous, isn't it? But somehow he he gets away with. I think it. he pull, he pulls it off because he does. I was just thinking of comparisons, but Moby's great uh, biography. A couple of I think he's done two now, but the first one of those it stopped at the point at which he yeah. got famous. So this is about the struggle. It's yeah. about Eminem's like Eminem and his mum and his crappy life, and that works. So they're living on a trailer park, aren't they? And yeah. He's, he's has he got a kid at this stage or not? I can't remember. I think maybe he's 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 got this girlfriend that he's struggling with, um, and. Um, He's trying to sort of make it as a rapper, but mm. he's doing some kind of manual labour as well at the same time. Yeah, so it cuts it's off. At, it's sort of it's not unegotistical at all, but it cuts off at the point where it becomes. Yeah. And I was thinking about um, as a massive comparison, the critic-proof Bohemian Rhapsody, the mm. Queen film, and just that sense that um, in terms of like the only struggle that you get in films like that is the obligatory line that goes like well, how are we going to get our records on the radio now? That kind of thing. You know, that's the way that they do fame instead of looking at the actual kind of biography of the the neighbourhood and the schooling and yes. the kind of the teenage years of the of the act. And I think it, you can, it's a bit like with um, Walk the Line, the great Wacken Phoenix, Johnny Cash film, is that you saw so much of the, of the Arkansas childhood and yeah. the sharecropping and the brother getting killed and stuff like that, that you just get more weight behind the character. So you almost can forget that it's a real person in it. It's just dramatically very effective. It also recalls a time for me where I was in the first or second year of university at this point. And it was very much, it was very influential for us because like we used to go around in these massive trousers and we would go to Scala and we watched like ludicrous battling with people and stuff like that. And we kind of felt we were in these films because there was a spate of them at the beginning of the 2000s that had like real rap battles in them. And you'd go into you some- you ever taken part in a rap battle? No, but we would all, like, they would happen and you'd like clear the clear the floor. It was a bit, it was kind of amazing that this went on for a little short period and it was reflected in films in all the dance movies like Save the Last Dance and stuff where you'd get this kind of posh white girl going into a hip hop club in Chicago and like taking part in a battle. So we kind of fantasised that we were in Eight Mile ourselves when we were actually at UCL. It's um, <laughs> It does that brilliantly though. It's like ex- the rap battles in it are exhilarating. And I, get, I think that's the thing. You have to get that right in a music biopic, don't you? Like uh, I think um, Walk the Line does that as well. The, the music scenes in Walk the Line, mm. it opens with the San Quentin prison performance and it's really kind of, you, the sound is like hits you in the gut. It's yeah. really thrilling. Um, and it, and it's done brilliantly in in Eight Mile. Yeah, it's like the non-commercial music moments. It doesn't open with them at like uh, playing to thousands at a paid gig or something. Yeah. it's the kind of like this is where it came from. Sort yeah, of thing. I shall be watching it again this weekend. Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it a couple of times. I think actually, and and the the main track is is brilliant, isn't mm. it? Lose yourself. There, Eight Miles by Eminem. Oh, I forgot to say. Also, it's the eighth best music biopic of all time according to Rolling Stone. Oh, eighth. Eighth, that's not, oh God. Is that good or bad? I don't know. 
I mean, uh, the, uh, do you the want doors. Know what the top three yeah, are? go on, go on. Um, quickly, I'm not there is number one. Gosh, that's the Bob Dylan, oh. strange Bob Dylan one. Bird, directed by Charlie by Clint Eastwood, um, is it number two? No, nope, what's and that? And then about? a John Carpenter TV movie biopic of Elvis is it number three? <laughs> what's Bird? It's um, which jazz musician was nicknamed Bird? Is it Charlie Parker? Oh, it's, a, it's like a impressionistic. Oh, so um, they've chosen really arty ones. Yeah. for the top three. That's just annoying. Yeah. Where yeah. was Walk the Line on that list? It was in the. I think it was in the top ten. Walk okay. the Line. Yeah. Dear Ooh. Rolling Stone, <laughs> I am very unhappy with your top ten music biopics of all time that you published five Such years ago. Pretentious choices. <laughs> anyway. But yes, Eight Mile. It's worth revisiting. Thank you for downloading this episode of The Back Half. If you joined us halfway through The Back Half, I suppose you don't really do that with podcasts. You don't really join no, them halfway unless through. unless you take your you headphones off. You might have stopped off. listening at some point. <laughs> Go for a you, week. You might have stopped listening for a long period <laughs> in the middle. This is the last episode in this format. It's the last half of the half. The last half of the half. But we are returning on the main New Statesman podcast, uh, hosted by Helen Lewis and Stephen Bush. Me and Kate will have a guest slot on that once a month. I think we're probably going to start in the week of the 17th of -hmm. December. In the meantime, thank you very much for for subscribing and downloading and listening to this podcast. You've been great. (laughs) And thanks also to Caroline Crampton, who's edited and and produced us uh, brilliantly over the... Gosh, how long have we been going? Two years. Is it two years? Two years. Maybe it's, yeah. I think, no, it was September last year, I'm sure. Right, okay, maybe a little bit over a year. Who knows? Feels like longer. Decades. (laughs) But yes, we'll be back. We'll be back with our new new guest slot in December, so do subscribe to the Main New Statesman podcast if you don't already. And Kate, this might be the last time you get to... It might be the last time for the hard-gigging quintet, quartet. I'm not sure what they are or who they are, (laughs) but they live in Japan and they're brilliant and they wrote a fantastic song called Godspeed, which we play every two weeks with great joy and we thank Pistol Jazz. 